The Coaches for Change podcast, leading voices in the coaching world discuss the change they're helping to create, drawing up a blueprint for social activism in the coaching community. This is episode seven of the C4C podcast. I'm AJ Cannell. Check us out, coachesforchange.org and at coachesforchange on Twitter and on Instagram. Special guest on today's podcast, Alex Pop, student athlete advisor at IMG Academy, brand new position for him. We'll go through his background briefly um, before he, he got to this point. Started out playing career, at least at the college level. He was a recruited walk-on, played his freshman year at Minnesota, then a three-year letter winner at Assumption in Worcester, Massachusetts. The team reached a Division II Sweet 16 his senior year. He was then a graduate assistant starting his coaching career at Springfield College, assistant coach in the G League for the Springfield Armor, associate head coach at Middlebury, where the team reached a Division Three, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, Division I debut director of ops at Holy Cross, and then most recently head coach of Vermont Academy back at the prep level where they won the 2016 NEPSAC 2A championship. And now, uh, congratulations on your brand new position at IMG. Alex Pop, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, AJ. Really excited to be on here and really excited about the momentum that's been generated with the Coaches for Change community. It's, it's quite a pleasure to be a part of, and it's awesome. Let's start this way, because you're our first guest that's, that's not right now connected to the college game. Although, of course, you go back a little bit, and as we talked about in your background, you've spent plenty of time at that level. But right now, you work at the prep level. So I'm wondering, is there something distinguishable to start us off when we're comparing? And I know you've got a chance to listen to some of our previous guests. If you're comparing the college level and even the pro level to the prep level, is there something distinguishable about the brand of institutional racism that might be found at the prep level? Um, that's a great question. I think the foundation of, of the prep school uh, model is, is basically a feeder system to PWIs. And, you know, with that being said, it's, it's essentially a microcosm of what you see in higher ed. Um, so I don't think there's a, a lot of difference. I think there's a, a whole lot of parallels, AJ. Um, and I just think that you're working with a younger demographic and, you know, the impact that you can have, um, in my opinion, is greater just because you're molding younger minds. Um, but I would say that you could probably draw, you know, far more parallels, um, if anything at all. And again, the preparatory model is to feed those, those higher ed PWIs. So what's a PWI? That is a primarily white institution, AJ. And I've worked at quite a few of them. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. I wanted to make sure people are, are up on kind of the, the lingo that you're going with, which it makes sense. So, okay. So you say parallels, draw me a few then. You know, if we're if we're thinking about that, what are some examples um, of those parallels? Uh, I would start with saying that the you know admissions model is just extremely outdated, and unfortunately, these models that have been in place and that are still in place are you know extremely classist, um, elitist, and and racist. Unfortunately, and it's going to take a lot of work to to make that that model change 
I don't know exactly what those admissions models would look like because I haven't seen them, like what they would look like if they were, you know, ideal. Um, but I would just say that, you know, they're, again, just to echo my point, the admissions models at these PWIs are classist, racist, and elitist. And, you know, it's the foundation of the school. You know, it really is that, that admissions funnel. Um, so that sets the tone in a lot of ways and it kind of establishes the, the culture. So this racism, elitism, and classism is embedded in everything that we do at these PWIs, unfortunately. Actually, I want to say, before I follow up on, on that, I think it would be helpful, first of all, because, I mean, you just started at IMG. Like, tell me about what you like about IMG. I think you were expressing that to me last night, that you feel overall pretty positive. Obviously, you're just starting out with them. You, one would think you would, you would feel encouraged about their stance on all of this. But what are you going to be doing for IMG, and how do you feel about kind of their overall organizational structure? Well, I'll have a chance to, to make an impact. In a, in a small way. Um, I'm certainly not the, the savior of, of all the issues that we're, we're kind of diving into, but I will be working in the admissions office. And IMG has taken some great steps and some great strides that, you know, have attracted me to move 12, 1200 miles south. Um, so I'm excited to kind of see where we can take it down in, uh, in Bradenton, Florida. Um, but I think it starts from the top down, I mean, you have to be able to recognize where you're going as an institution. You know, we talked about it last night, AJ. I think it, a lot of this work takes three X's. You know, it's like, where, where'd you start? Where are you now? And where are you going? And I think um, having a critical understanding of what that looks like is the first step, first and foremost. And then getting the right people in the trenches to actually roll up your sleeves and do the work. Um, so it's going to be a, a lot of fun to kind of tackle the, the journey with IMG Academy. How can some of these now to sort of bring it back now that people have an idea of, of what you'll be more of what you'll be doing there at IMG. When you look back, I mean, you were the head coach at Vermont Academy, very familiar with the prep school circuit in the Northeast in particular and new England. What can some of these PWIs, as you put it, do to improve with the admission process? Because that seemed to be the word that is coming up when you talked about some of these issues that have to do with race and classism and that type of thing. When you look at, at the admissions process, what in general, I know all schools are, are different. You know, that's it, every case is its own. I think at each of these places, some probably schools are doing more to breed, pro breed progress than others are. But in general, when you think about kind of that admissions process, what are you looking for? Well, you're, it starts with um, casting a wide net and then doing the work, uh, doing the research, educating yourself and others. Um, but it doesn't hurt to have resources, right? I mean, um, a lot of the schools, you know, up north, if you're understaffed, underfunded, um, you can run into some challenges with the progress of this work, AJ. Um, but I think just kind of un having an understanding, again, of those three X's of where you're trying to go and then doing the homework and then following through um, 
it's made a lot easier when you have the resources to, to do it. Meaning, you know, the, the money, the capital. You told me you had a bit of an awakening this summer post George Floyd. You also have a background where, because you played at Minnesota um, and still have connections there that you felt like you know, that hit extra close to home. I know in that sense, but just um, as a white male, you know, we're a couple of white males talking on this podcast centered around diversity. Obviously we try to have different guests on uh, so far and we'll continue to of different varied backgrounds. Um, but just your speak to, if you wouldn't mind, just what you were feeling um, this summer, it seemed like this hit you in a different way. What needs to be done to improve our society going forward? Yeah. Um, I would say like many of us with, with time kind of slowing down a little bit with the global pandemic and then the access to the video, you know, having one of these has, has changed everything because when you see uh, firsthand video of police brutality, um, it changes you, you know, that alone had a major impact. And then the coaching fraternity, and the athletes, the response, I think, also had a, a monster impact for me to want to do the work. Um, so, yeah, the, the George Floyd, you know, murder took place in Minneapolis. And one of the first um, things I saw was my, my college roommate, Ryan Saunders, posting about, you know, how wrong this is. And, and how that made him feel. And that gave me a visceral reaction. Um, it just felt like it was really close to home. Um, and so from there on, you know, I've kind of formed um, just an energy and a momentum to want to educate myself and want to educate others and want to work with people who are like-minded to try to find, you know, creative ways to having a, a small impact. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, AJ, but I think like a lot of, a lot of our country, you know, there was definitely a, a, an awakening that took place about 300 days ago. And I haven't let go of that. I think it's what we're seeing, um, with athletics and, you know, basketball in particular is we're getting busy again and preparing for the next scout and getting your team ready for, you know, the upcoming game, it takes precedence. So it's, it's hard to keep this on the forefront. And I can totally understand that having lived, you know, that lifestyle as well. But I think what's important for, for us as white males is just to not let go of that energy because it, it's going to be something that is not going to go away, right? It's just, it's embedded in everything. So I think for us, it's like, this has to be a constant. If you're willing to sign up to do this work, um, it's going to be a constant. And um, while the, you know, the tragedies that took place were incredibly horrific, I'm seeing the silver lining of it is like, well, at least there's been an awakening in our country and at least, you know, it's a little more acceptable to take a stand. You know, I think it's a lot more appropriate for guys who look like you and I to take a stand on this stuff than maybe it did five years ago, 10 years ago, 
when stuff was when stuff was getting swept under the rug. Um, so yeah, here we are, uh, January, 2021. And I feel like, you know, we're just getting started on this stuff. You know, you've been an outspoken voice ever since this, this summer, social media, certainly with your student athletes, what's your advice to other coaches, particularly coaches that are white about how to effectively become an advocate in the right ways without doing so just to avoid criticism, um, right. to avoid being canceled. You, a couple of terms that you threw out there when we were talking beforehand, a couple of key ones that I'll offer you up right now, a chance to expand on that stuff. Performative allyship, virtue signaling. I think all these things are related so yeah, so what's your what's your advice to other white people, white coaches about how to be an ally without it just being a gesture, an empty gesture? That's it, right? That's the uh, the million dollar question. And I think that if if there's any takeaway for for white coaches from this podcast, like here it is, you know, do what you can to be a co-conspirator opposed to, to kind of the performative allyship of posting a black square, um, the virtue signaling to kind of check it off the box. Like, all right, I'm an ally. Look at me. You know, I threw on a black lives matter t-shirt and I'm wearing a bracelet. I'm a, I'm an ally. You know, that's not getting it done. Right. And I think that that's an important lesson that I've been able to learn being a co-conspirator means you're actually doing the work and you're willing to put your reputation on the line. And I think what comes with that um, kind of like understanding that allyship is not a fixed status is you're going to be nitpicked. You know, you're going to make yourself vulnerable. You're going to have to think for yourself. And that's very challenging, you know, especially when you have a lot of different responsibilities in your primary job, uh, your primary role at your institution, you know, that's challenging. You might be called, you know, like we said, uh, you might be called a performative ally. You might be called disingenuous. Um, you got to keep working. You know, you got to keep finding ways to be creative. So I think um, having gone through it and still trying to figure out what my identity is, um, my advice would be kind of to make sure that, you know, you're not just doing it to check off a box and you're doing it because, you know, it means a lot to you and it comes from the heart and it comes from relationships, you know, it, it comes from relationships. Uh, I think coaches also have a competitive advantage, AJ, meaning like the exposure to black culture for white coaches is there for the taking exposure to meaningful relationships, right. Within the black community is there for the taking. So we have a competitive advantage opposed to maybe, you know, the person that, is a, an investment banker or a lawyer or a doctor who doesn't have exposure to black culture. You know, I think we have a competitive advantage as coaches because we're also willing to lean into the discomforts of growth mindset. You know, we're not just going to accept the narrative of this is how they used to always do it. You know, otherwise we'd be all coaching the four corners offense and running the flex, right? So we should be able to understand that like, change is part of, of our identity as coaches and we can apply it 
to our work, you know, as um, co-conspirators. I still love the flex here and there. Shout out to the flex, but point 100%, 100%. I grew up a BC a, fan. Horns alignment, you know, get a, a quick hitter. No doubt. You're, you're spot on. Um, here's something I've grappled with a lot when it comes to also being a white person in sports and in life. Um, having success as a person that comes from a, a place of privilege as a white male. Um, in a, and this is an industry too that we're talking about, whether it be sort of your specific industry, which is coaching, mine, which is broadcasting, sports broadcasting, where as I was describing to you beforehand, it is, it's definitely zero sum. And what I mean by that is that, well, certainly sports is about winning and losing. There's a winner and there's a loser. Um, but also just these positions that we're occupying. I mean, there's a finite number of really good coaching positions. We could argue about what that number is, but it's finite. Um, there's a finite number of really good broadcasting positions. We could kind of go back and forth about what exactly where, how far that extends, but there's certainly a finite number and it's more competitive than ever, both of these industries. Um, so as a white person, how do you come to terms with trying to have your own success, but not, but also coming to terms with the fact that you might be benefiting from factors like your own privilege, but also wanting to raise up other people, people of color, minorities, to have success in spite of some of these hurdles that we've been talking about? How do you come to terms with all of this in your own role within this system? That's an excellent question, AJ. And I think that that's a question that a lot of us white coaches struggle with. And it would be easy for us coaches to find enough discomfort with that dynamic to kind of avoid leaning into the work. Um, I think that there's a couple things I want to hit on to kind of answer your question, but I think, um, we must, the, the, the initial reaction is we must work with where things are and, and what is, and then apply creativity um, using the power of imagination. We can't pretend like things are perfect when they're not. So I think kind of leaning into, all right, like I have to take advantage of what I look like and who I am and where I come from to do the right thing every every opportunity that I get and not be too worried about the centering or you know positioning ourselves like like you talked about right I think we're we're um you know when you're when you're raised in the in the United States of America um you're gonna be raised with with a racist worldview like we, we've done our homework on this I think is a reality. I've said it a couple times on this pod is, you know, racism is literally embedded in everything. Uh, and that's undeniable. Right. Um, so that impacts our behavior, our assumptions and our investments. Right. But, um, if, if it sounds like I'm not answering your question, it's because it's a really tough question. It's a really tricky dynamic for all of us, right? I don't know how I would answer that question. I mean, that's why I'm asking it. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's oftentimes I'll admit, man, when I'll ask a question and I probably do have a good idea of how I might answer it. This one, 
I don't know. I think I kind of put you out there, hung you out to dry a little bit because I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that question. I got, I got one to stump the, the listeners and, and the folks of our community too. It's like, if you're in a room full of, of people and you're in a room full of educated people who you trust and, and you believe in, and you say, all right, how many of us understand diversity, AJ? I'm guessing 99 to 100% of people are going to raise their hand, right? And then if your next question or what, what your next question should be is, all right, what are, we, what, it, what are people diverse from? And then the hands start to go down. You're like, uh, oh, wow. It's a really tough next question. What are, what are they diverse from, right? It's like the white body has been kind of like put on this pedestal and it's really kind of strange and bizarre. And I think asking those questions in succession um, can be quite powerful when you're just kind of starting things off, you know, like, cause I think there's so many different layers to this and you have to meet people where they are. And, you know, the, the last year or so, in our countries showed how little we actually know about this, right? Like I have a master's degree and, and I, you know, I would like to think that I'm pretty educated and, and well experienced. I didn't know that there was a race riots in, in Tulsa, you know, that, that tore down Black Wall Street. I didn't know that existed until the summer of 2020. I mean, that right there alone is, is pretty eye-opening, right? Yeah, I think if it, maybe uh, it was a faint memory that that had occurred for me, but not until that really came to light. I to I'm in the same way. I mean, I don't have a master's degree, uh, but you know, same sort of thing. Felt like I was pretty highly educated, but really was not conscious about that either. Um, let's let's go a little current eventsy right now. Sort of something that's not even inside the college game or the prep levels in terms of it's not even the same sport but I think I could tie it back into your experiences the NFL um right now really coming under fire in this in this current coaching cycle with the complaint being that if you think about the Rooney rule the efforts that have been made to have more black people people of color hired as coaches in the NFL that these teams still just don't seem to have figured out a way um, to, to accomplish that. That it seems like there's been some specific cases where some white head coaches have now been hired with dubious resumes in place of a guy like Eric Bieniemy from the Chiefs who is helping game plan, setting up the game plan, running the highest powered offense in the league now for the last several years. So it's like, what's the deal there? What's going on? My question for you is not about the NFL because you don't work in the NFL, but it's more about if we're looking to draw an analogy, if we think people know there are enough fans, sports fans out there that see what's going on in the NFL, generally have a good idea of what that landscape is like in the first place and can draw their own con conclusions and theories about why there might be problems there. Let's go back to the prep level where you're working right now. Take me inside some of the challenges that are associated with trying to hire more people of color at that level. What have you seen come up in terms of some of the challenges? 
I would say first and foremost would be kind of the numbers game for what you would describe as, you know, the, the idea of being qualified, the idea of wanting the job and then having the relationships. Um, and then I would look directly AJ towards who is doing the hiring. What does the hiring committee look like? You know, for schools that have, you know, zero to next to zero amount of diversity, it's going to be challenging for, you know, those schools to get the most qualified individual for the job. You know, in boys basketball alone in prep schools, you know, you're, we're talking about the most progressive or one of the most progressive sports in all of prep school athletics. There's not enough black head coaches. And for me, that's low hanging fruit for these schools to hire diversity in a way that, you know, it will is set up for success. Um, and then the same thing on the girls side, you know, we could talk about the gender role too, AJ, you're seeing way too many white males coaching on the girls side where it's like, um, what's wrong with this picture? It's all a microcosm of, you know, what we see um, at these higher levels, you know, NFL, NBA, division one athletics. Um, so I certainly, I know that it, it doesn't look the way it should AJ. And um, I think kind of starting with who's doing the hiring is, is probably the, the place I would start and then finding individuals who would actually be willing to pursue these jobs uh, I think would be, would be the next part, you know, cause it's um, these PWIs are, 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 are tricky places in a lot of ways. These, these schools, PWIs that you mentioned, you know, kind of like the NEPSAC, that environment, which you were in for a while. What's the student body diversity? I would, now, now I'm double thinking the way I say the word diversity after what you brought up earlier, but the quote unquote diversity in the student body compared to the, like the basketball team that you coached. What do you typically see at those schools? Um, they're yeah, it's predominantly white and, um, Interestingly enough, I mean, being a numbers guy and loving analytics with sports, you know, the, the next, you know, demographic uh, in line is the BIPOC community, uh, or, or I'm sorry, just black students alone. So you would think that these schools would want to cater more to these, to these demographics. Um, but to answer your question, well, yeah. on, the short, on the, the short answer of it is they're predominantly white, whereas a basketball team or a football team uh, might might conversely look the other way, right? Where you're you have more black students than than whites. Is there ever tension on the campus about that contrast? Um, I think it shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, microaggressions was a terminology that you know you and I bounced around earlier this morning. Um, I think you'd see a lot of that, um, but you know having been on a zoom conference call with expressions elite EYBL team and where they had alumni and guys that were currently at all of these prep schools. Um, 
it felt like it was very real and very present, um, it, you know, in 2020, 2021. Um, so as the, as a coach that spent six years uh, as a head coach at a prep school in new England, and then being a, a guy that recruited new England prep schools for a dozen years, uh, I didn't necessarily have to deal with any of it or, or, you know, see any of it. Um, which is a, probably a reflection of, you know, kind of where I was kind of occupying uh, time and, and, and energy. But that being said, over the summer, we had a Juneteenth celebration with Expressions Elite on Zoom and the guys were able to kind of have the platform to share some stories. And it, it sounds very real and very present to me. Um, and, and again, you know, in a lot of ways, stuff shows up in microaggressions. Um, but there was a story of a top 25 player uh, at one prep school, you know, where he had kneeled down um, for Sunday mass and in the pew was, you know, written the word, the N word uh, carved into the, into the wood. And, and this young man was like, I had to look at that. Um, so that was just, you know, one small example that I heard from, from that call, but um, it, it's very much real and very much present. The other final point I would make too, is just if you're dealing with any percentage above negligible of people of color at a, at a school at an institution, like one of these, why as an administration, you wouldn't prioritize at least having some staff members, teachers, administrators, whomever to be there. Um, when you talked about that as an issue when it comes to hiring, you know, who's making the hires, even just for the you know, same thing, just for the kids, whether it be for making other hires of minorities or being there for kids of different backgrounds. I just, I couldn't imagine, I don't work in education, but I couldn't imagine if I did why, how I, how I wouldn't notice, pick up on the importance of trying to have a, a you know variety of different people, different backgrounds, um, at least make some effort to do that at the administrative level and at the teaching level. And again, some of these schools have more resources than others. AJ, not to not to provide excuses, but I'm just you know being real that that was definitely something that that held some of these schools back. Um, but you're spot on. You're spot on. The the one the one scenario that I saw jump out a lot that actually just drives me crazy is when it's time to, to do the marketing and create the view book and, and show Instagram and, and videos of your school advertising to the, you know, external shareholders, I'm sorry, stakeholders is, is all of a sudden, you know, the guys on the basketball team or the football team are now all of a sudden a priority because we're about to snap some photos and, and show, you know, that our campus has diversity, but when it comes down to the, you know, the day-to-day -day and there's microaggressions occurring on the ground level, all of a sudden, you know, it's less of a priority. So I think that that's a fascinating, you know, juxtaposition that occurs. Yeah. It's like any politician, no matter what their demographic percentage is, as far as their support, if you see them at a rally, they're going to find the three black people that are there and put them behind them on the stage. You know, whether that's representative of their actual group that supports them or not, like that's what they're going to do. 
Um, I think it's, I think that's a little bit of the analogy there. Is there anything else, Alex, that we have missed that you wanted to point out any other points that you wanted to make? I'll give you a second to, to go there. If there's anything we, we, you feel like we haven't gotten to. Yeah. I appreciate that. AJ. I would say that, you know, if, if you look like me and you're willing to, to lean into this work, cause you really care about the athletes that you work with and their families that they represent and the families that you work with, you know, is do yourself a favor and understand that you kind of, you are who you spend time with, you know? Um, so what is your communication look like and who are you educating yourself uh, with? Like, who are you in the trenches with? So I just wanted to quickly give a shout out AJ to uh, Billy Tom from Millbrook school up in New York. He's been a, a, an incredible um, resource of mine and a mentor um, Marcus King, who's, who's here, obviously with coaches for change. He's been an incredible mentor of mine. Uh, then some, the, some families who I've worked with have turned into, you know, best friends of mine and, and people who I've, you know, really leaned on, um, when times have gotten hard and when challenges have emerged. Uh, so John Bull, Opara, uh, from New York, Shane Bosco from Canada, Owusu Anane also from Canada. And then Jess Bell, um, from the Burlington, Vermont area, who runs a school and is a father of, of two former players of mine. Uh, then my wife, Liza Tarr. I mean, I, I, there's no way I would be this far along with this type of work um, if it weren't for my wife. And then, um, you know, the inspiration too. Like all of us young coaches get into coaching because we have big dreams and we aspire to, you know, achieve greatness and maybe one day coach in a Final Four, right? Like seeing the leader i'm sorry seeing um kind of how things have have um seeing the example that has been made from carm you know guys like mike menega and then even at the highest level like lebron james's work that's all meant a lot to me and then last but not least is some of my former players man Simir torrance at marquette marcus santos silva at texas tech um seeing what those guys are doing on, on a big stage uh, it means the world to me. So I think having a circle of people that you can, you know, bounce ideas off of and educate with and be kind of like on the same movement. Uh, I think that's imperative because um, you're going to feel lonely and it's going to be challenging at times and, and having people to lean on, I think is just critical, AJ. So yeah, that's my advice is make sure you're, you got people in the trenches with you and um, you know, be ready to think for yourself. Alex, it's been great to add you to our collection of voices so far. Season one of this. Really appreciate you coming on. Looking forward to seeing, you know, where your path takes you because I can see that you're really um, committed to both this movement, but also you feel strongly about your role just within the coaching industry, helping young people whatever way possible in general. So interested to see where your life path continues to take you. Good luck at this new job at IMG. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me on, AJ. Appreciate right. you guys. Appreciate everybody from Coaches for Change, too. No doubt about it. So that's coachesforchange.org. You want to check that out at Coaches for Change on Twitter and on Instagram. Looking forward to our next episode coming out. A few more still left to go in season number one. Check out over the next few weeks. But uh, for, for Alex Pop, student athlete advisor at IMG Academy, I'm AJ Canales. This has been episode seven of the Coaches for Change podcast. <laughs>